Howdy, 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 everyone. This is Can We Pause It, where we watch a movie just to press the pause button and figure out what we just watched. But not only the what, but the why of what we just watched. And I'm your host, Ty McCarthy. And this episode, we are pausing on a movie that is so dear to my heart. And no, it's not what you're thinking. Not the 1948 Walt Disney classic, So Dear to My Heart. Even though I did win a VHS copy of So Dear to My Heart in a McDonald's sweepstakes, and I have really good memories of that, so it does kind of make So Dear to My Heart so dear to my heart. Uh, but anyway, the movie that's actually so dear to my heart is Oklahoma. And if you can't tell by my inflection, there's an exclamation point on the end of that, meaning not the state or the school, but the movie musical. I am so excited for this episode. We got so much to talk about, so let's go ahead and dive right in. Oklahoma is so ingrained into the fabric of our culture. Not only has it been revived seven times on Broadway in the West End, it spawned countless regional theater and high school productions, and in fall of 2023, there were not one, but two national ad campaigns for Toyota and T-Mobile using its music. Toyota Trucks. Let's go places. Oklahoma was different than the shows that came before it because it fused together dance, dialogue, and music in one big cohesive unit. A tremendous feat of creativity that has never been done before or since. It was a massive hit on Broadway, running for a then-record-breaking five years with over 2,000 performances, and it earned a record number of zero Tony Awards, mostly because the Tonys were still six years away from being invented, but still. There's so much to discuss about Oklahoma exclamation point, particularly its relationship to Oklahoma, comma, that it could fill up several episodes. But my producers think I'll lose subscriber, so I'll keep it just to this episode. Before we land right into that, we're going to take a look at the conditions of the atmosphere that have swirled around movie musicals and how they might differ from musical movies to see what's made them such a lasting part of our culture. Time to unwrap your candies and silence your pagers and cell phones, because our show is about to start. Curtain up. Act 1. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Scientists and historians don't know exactly when humans began to sing. A lot of good they are. But near as they can theorize, humans and our cousins, you know, the ones that live in the country with Mercedes, a swimming pool, and room for a pony, the Neanderthals, have been singing and dancing for quite a long time. Scientists guess that early singing and dancing were used for things like finding a mate, to pass down tribal history, and in other religious ceremonies. All done so one day we could sit in an elementary school multi-purpose room and watch an unlicensed and very off-Broadway production of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. As I previously mentioned in episode one, the bond between Broadway and movies share a very special relationship, not unlike the USA and Britain, except for Broadway didn't overthrow movies because the price of a stamp went up a half pence. It's a common misconception that silent movies were that. Silent. Silent movies would often have a live organist or a fine player piano player piano accompanying the film. For very special occasions, sometimes a theater would roll out a full orchestra. Movies have always shared a special relationship with music, and by extension, the genre of musicals. For all its warts, the jazz singer did give us an epic and nearly prophetic line to welcome us into the new era of synchronized sound, with the first line of dialogue spoken on film being, you ain't heard nothing yet. Now, songs in the early days of talking pictures were more or less just elaborate ruses to show off the new technology and to show off the new range to the stars. They're not just a pretty face. They could talk and sing. In many ways, early movies were just trying to duplicate what was already popular on stage. Watching these early films can feel a little laborious because our film language, or how movies as a medium tell a story, has a evolved a lot since the 1920s. Musical movies as a genre 
we're extremely influential in developing that film language and creating a differentiation so that we're not just watching a filmed version of a current show at the August Wilson Theater. Knowing that older movies are more or less filmed plays can help trick your brain a little bit to get in sync with that style a bit faster, like how your ear has to adjust to the style of Shakespeare. By Act 2, you're an expert in Middle English. As time went on, studios would turn intellectual properties first appearing on stage in New York into movies. One hurdle they faced in making the jump from stage to screen is how best to adapt a show to a new medium. Each medium, be it book, TV show, movie, or play, have their own pros and cons for storytelling. And any jump between mediums needs to go through the adaptation process. It just so happens I have my adaptation blender next to me ready to go. Hmm, what setting is best? Mints? Puree? Obliterate? Any jump to stage or... Sorry. Any jump, be it stage to book or TV show to movie, needs to go through this blender. Sometimes the setting on the adaptation blender purposely leaves things out. Famously, the screenwriter of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Philippa Boyens, cut the fan-favorite character of Tom Bombadil. To paraphrase Philippa from the extended cut of the DVD commentary I watched back in 2005 when I had the flu real bad after Christmas, it didn't make narrative sense to set up the ring as this evil force that could tempt anyone, only to have a character who's immune to its power so early on. She set the adaptation blender to necessary for plot only, and a scene that undercuts the urgency by having our fellowship chill with Tom for a few days has to get left out, no matter how cool it is. Without the proper setting on the blender, Lord of the Rings might have been four days long instead of four hours. It's all about finding that sweet spot. So that's all well and good for a book to movie jump, but what about stage to screen? Let's pause on the 2020 movie adaptation of a play, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. The dialogue is lifted straight from August Wilson's script. It's what you would see on stage in New York or at the Goodman Theater in Chicago. But the movie is able to expand the world. It adds this beautiful opening sequence with establishing shots that set up the mood and tone of 1920 Chicago as Levy and the band arrive at the studio. And it also contains something unique to a movie, a close-up. Well, I suppose one could still create a close-up if you use your opera glasses, but that's neither here nor there. The vast array of facial expressions, even the most subtle expressions by Viola Davis or Chadwick Boseman, are captured on film. Whereas facial expressions on stage have to be larger or more exaggerated so they reach the balcony. You can't forget the balcony. George C. Wolfe's August Wilson's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is at its core a play turned into a movie, but it succeeds in giving us a three-dimensional, big-world feel that's unique to the cinema. One of the biggest pioneers who saw the three-dimensional potential movies have over watching actual three-dimensional people on stage was Busby Berkeley. He gave audience a near 4D experience. His numbers were not limited to the edge of the stage. He boldly showed us what was in front of, behind, above, and below the camera. All the prepositions. These were fully actualized original pieces of art that could only exist on film, the scope of which could never be duplicated at the Lundfontaine in Times Square or even Disney's Hollywood Studios' Great Movie Ride. His signature style was geometric synchronized swimming routines and over-the-top kaleidoscope-esque dancing. Playing with size and proportion, he would focus on one dancer, only to reveal that they were one in an infinite line of dancers. His By the Waterfall sequence in 1933's Footlight Parade featured a pyramid of showgirls standing on spinning alternating levels as they created this human fountain. Another signature of his was having a beautiful woman rise out of the water completely dry. How was it done? Movie magic! In Gold Diggers of 1933, he plays with proportion so you feel like the size of the quarter as the camera zooms out on this giant set. And just so this episode won't feel aged in three years, his musical numbers passed the vibe test. He understood the assignment, and he perfectly married the message and the medium, and literally created the blueprint Hollywood musicals would follow for years to come. Go off, King. Go off. Now, Hollywood not only imported musicals from New York, it also created them. At times, they mirrored each other. At other times, they were very different. Singing in the Rain, An American in Paris, Meet Me in St. Louis, all share some qualities of a stage musicals, but are uniquely movie musicals. Janine Basinger has a great book that dives into the early years of the movie musical called The Movie Musical. 
but you don't have to take my word for it. She bifurcates the musical genre by having movie musicals and musical movies. They are different in how they use the word musical. For one, the word music is before the word movie, and for the other, it's after. It sort of boils down to what industry is the driving force in its creation and to a lesser extent how songs are used in the movie. Many Hollywood-made movie musicals leaned heavily on using music diegetically, while Broadway imports did the opposite. They use music non-diegetically. It's a small but distinct difference. For one, the word non is in front of the word diegetic, and for the other, it's not there. In real life, diegetic music looks like the crowd singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game during the seventh inning stretch of a Seattle Mariners game. The crowd and the players all know a song is happening. What is not known is why you're at a Seattle Mariners game when you could be driving through Olympic National Park in your brand new Kia Sorento EX. The all-new seven-passenger Kia Sorento EX is equipped with a four-wheel drive, 2.5-liter four-cylinder engine, and a range of over 29 highway miles per gallon. Get yours today. The point is, the crowd watching the Mariners lose to the Kansas City Royals could just as easily be singing Pearl Jam's Last Kiss, and it would not change the outcome of the plot, aka affect the outcome of the game. So in these early movies, song breaks are snuck into where you find singing in real life, school holiday concerts, bars, old-timey nightclubs, concerts, and yeah, even churches. Whereas most musical movies use non-diegetic music. The TV Tropes website suggests that musicals with non-diegetic songs operate in a little pocket universe. When it's time for the song, all the characters suddenly are transported to this pocket universe for the duration of the singing. When it's over, seamlessly they're transported back to the main reality of the story. That's why all the main characters in the background townsfolk suddenly know all the choreography and the lyrics without it being weird. We don't have an example of this happening in real life with non-diegetic music because we really don't have access to interdimensional travel. Yet. It's important to note that all the music and sounds that the characters aren't aware of that are just for the benefit of the audience, that's non-diegetic. This means that when Warden and Karen are making out on the beach in From Here to Eternity, they can't hear the romantic strings playing behind them. Also probably because they have too much water in their ears from the waves. The Death Star exploding in space? That's just for us, because in space, no one can hear you point out scientific inaccuracies. When the tour jeep arrives at the gates of Jurassic Park, John Williams' theme is heard in the vehicle accompanied by Richard Kiley's narration because they spared no expense. But just seconds later, the theme shifts to being non-diegetic as they enter the park. This is because there's not a hard and fast rule of when sounds are non-diegetic or diegetic. Heck, glee shifts between the two and back in the span of a single chorus. After the war, uh, let's go with the uh, Franco-Prussian War. After the Franco-Prussian War, musicals were everywhere. If you wanted to succeed in Hollywood between 1940 and 1970 without really trying, make a musical. During that time span, all but six Tony Award winners for Best Musical got a movie adaptation. Additionally, Going My Way, Gigi, and American Paris were all movie musicals that won Best Picture at the Oscars in the 40s and 50s. Those were followed by West Side Story, Sound of Music, and Oliver winning in the 60s. Then, like turning off a faucet, the hits just stopped. A musical wouldn't win again until 2002's Chicago. What happened? Did Hollywood just fall out of love with musicals? On July 16, 1969, three Americans boldly went where no one had gone before. The moon. Five months later, Hello, Dolly! was released in theaters. We'll get back to the moon later, both literally and figuratively. For now, let's pause on Hello, Dolly! If you haven't seen Hello, Dolly! it's about a woman of a certain age whose profession is a matchmaker. But irony alert, she's single. And she's fixing up everyone she meets, and she has her eye on a rich bachelor who's 22 years her single. An odd couple for sure, but hey, that's showbiz. So what's the catch? 
Lindsay Ellis says that Hello Dolly nearly killed off the musical genre of film altogether. She talks about how the production had a lot of problems. The budget was overrun. There was a public feud between the co-stars Barbara Streisand and Walter Matthau. Carol Channing, who had originated the role, was sidelined for a much younger star, Barbara Streisand. Raspberries. And the costs were astronomical. Adjusting for inflation, Dolly's $25 million budget would be just $100 million shy of the budget of Endgame. That's a lot of money. And it only made $1 million back at the box office, or $7 million in 2023 dollars. Not exactly a cash cow. She goes on to say that Hello Dolly came out in an already super-saturated musical market, not too unlike the superhero era we're currently in. And Ellis posted this all in 2017. Looking at the current performance of superhero movies at the box office, how many more flops will Marvel Studios be allowed before it's sold for parts by the House of Mouse? After I learned all that, I wanted to see just how deep the impact crater of Hello was. If you don't have access to your musical database in Microsoft Access, you can use mine. I scoured the internet for the names of any musical nominee for a Tony and other landmark shows. Then I put them into an access database and gave them a unique identifier. That's about 502 shows. Then, by taking the year it premiered on film, by subtracting the number it debuted on Broadway, you can look back at your data to see the average amount of time it takes for a musical to get its film adaptation. It's almost too easy. And the results are pretty striking. Between 1940 and 1970, the average time for a film adaptation was about five years. Then along came Dolly. And between 1970 and 2022, it jumps to over 20 years. When the Hello Dolly movie debuted in 1969, it was Shores Are Born, five years after it had debuted at the St. James Theater in 1964. But in those five years, the world had changed faster than you could say supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. I mean, we landed on the moon by that time. See, I told you we'd get back to the moon. During those five years, a seismic shift in our culture happened, brought to you in part by new technologies, the Vietnam War, the ending of the Hays Code, the number six, and by viewers like you. Thank you. The bright colors and period costumes of 1890s Gilded Age Yonkers were simply out of place next to the countercultural movements of Woodstock. Even though those towns are 100 miles apart, they were light years apart on a cultural level. One was forging new grounds with a music festival and blurring the lines between artistry and politics. The other was searching for ribbons in a hat shop. And I'm pretty sure nightly updates on the Vietnam War didn't help Dolly feel more relevant either. The relaxing and the eventual end of the Hays Code in the mid-60s also helped change the type of movies audiences consumed. The Hays Code was this Hollywood-created set of guidelines movies needed to follow. Basically, self-censorship rooted in fear that Congress would step in and regulate them otherwise. Sprinkle in some good old-fashioned red scare, and you get the Hays Code. Musicals lent themselves to thrive under the Hays Code. With only 90 minutes of real estate to work with, clean and simple plots are a must. Lead character good, villain character bad. Done and dusted. Just because they had a Hays Code didn't mean that non-approved things wouldn't be shown. They just used a lot of workarounds. Queer characters that had been out prior to Hays now were coded in symbolism. Sex scenes still happen, but there was a lot of cutting away. That's an oversimplification of the era, but we're going to have to pause it there because my producer just turned on the not-our-topic light. Because musicals were seen as a safe bet that weren't going to violate any codes, studios kept making them, and in turn, increased the probability that they'd win an award. Of the eight musicals that won Best Picture, seven of those came before 1969. Nice. It became a self-fulfilling prophecy that with the Hays Code gone, the pendulum swang, swung? To the other extreme. Movie musicals and movies overall in the 1970s were filthy, both literally and figuratively. You sort of feel like no one in the 70s bathed. Surrounded in all the smut, miraculously, 1973 gave us two movie versions of the greatest story ever told, Jesus Christ Superstar and Godspell. Now, of course, Hollywood still continued to produce musicals after 1970, but in order to survive, the genre had to adapt. Fiddler on the Roof was the first musical nominated after Hello in 1971, but already we're starting to see some of the adaptation process evolve to keep the genre limping along. Roof has a strong point of view in a gritty setting that seemed to fit well in the changing American cultural landscape. Cabaret was the next musical nominated after Roof, and it stripped all of its non-diegetic songs and 
put all of the show songs in the friendly confines of the Kit Kat Club. It's dingy, grimy, and claustrophobic, and doesn't shy away from its <gasps> immoral storyline or characters. A Tony Stark contrast to Hello Dolly's clean aesthetic, bright colors, period costumes, and large sweeping locations with elaborate dance numbers. Cabaret and Roof are just different enough to keep the genre as a whole on life support. Now, the decade ends with Bob Fosse's All That Jazz being nominated for Best Picture in 1979, totaling three nominations, but zero wins for the 1970s. And looking back, Hello Dolly wasn't that bad. It's a great rainy day watch. I mean, it has the last on-screen appearance of jazz legend Louis Armstrong, who himself is getting the musical treatment in A Wonderful World, which just finished Broadway tryouts here in Chicago. And Dolly itself got a little bit of a redemption when it became a subplot in 2009's Disney presentation of a Pixar film, WALL-E. Time has been kinder to it, because Dolly is as Dolly was, a bit of escapism. Now, we here at Can We Pause It are quirk stands. Sound of Music and My Fair Lady, which won Best Picture back-to-back at the Academy Awards, also won the Tony for Best Musical, the only two to do so outright. Now, Chicago the Musical didn't win Best Musical in 1976 in its original run. It lost to Chorus Line. But in 1996, its revival did, and would go on to win the Oscar in 2002. And I bet you're thinking, Ty, what about Titanic? Didn't they both win? Yes and no. Broadway's Tony-winning Titanic and Hollywood's Oscar-winning Titanic share the same plot and title, but they are not the same. And then there's applause. It's based off the non-musical movie All About Eve, one of the first to go backwards from film to stage. But for it to truly be a double-double, it would need to have the musical version adapted into a movie and have that musical version win Best Picture. Which, gestures vaguely at everything, oh, was I not supposed to say that? That's me gesturing, is more and more likely to happen. TVTropes.com calls this phenomenon recursive adaptation, the ping-ponging of stories between medium, adapting and readapting over and over again, like snitches on beaches. And it's not entirely new. The producers in Hairspray are famous examples of it. Mean Girls is just the latest of them to do it. With risk aversion being so high in New York and Hollywood, repurposing already known stories seems like a safe bet. Mamma Mia is based off the works of ABBA, which was made into a musical, then that musical was turned into a movie, and the success of that movie spawned its sequel, how long before we get Mamma Mia 2 on Broadway, and then that goes back to the cinema and gets readapted. The limit does not exist. The 80s and 90s saw the rise in the animated movie musical, as Don Bluth challenged Disney for box office supremacy. So Disney re-embraced its roots and made a musical for the first time in a long time and kicked off its so-called Disney renaissance with Oliver and Company, and at the end of the Disney decade would be challenged again with the rise of DreamWorks Animation. Shrek could potentially have an infinite amount of bounces in its recursive adaptation life cycle. Shrek was based off a children's book, then adapted into an animated movie, and that animated movie was adapted into a stage musical, which then could be adapted back into an animated and a people movie musicals. Then, that musical movie could be adapted into one of those real long character sound effects books my mom would never let me buy. Even without the Hays Code to fertilize the ground, we're still getting a plethora of movie musicals, although gone are the fun and fancy free days as a quick movie adaptation. Hollywood is in the midst of a mini-musical revival. Nearly every year since Chicago, a musical has been nominated for Best Picture or was in the top 10 highest-grossing films of the year. But we're sort of pulling from older sources. Rent, Les Mis, Phantom of the Opera, and Wicked took a 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 25, 16, and 21 years to get made into a movie, respectively. Cats took a whopping 37 years to get adapted, and a lot of us wish it could have been longer. But all of those time gaps and adaptation pale in comparison to the 104 years it took for the Pirates of Penzance to be turned into a movie. Well, 25 and a little bit over on account of it being a leap year. However, the movie version that starred Kevin Klein, Linda Ronstadt, and Angela Lindsbury opened in 1983 was based off the Broadway revival, which opened three years prior in 1980. A Plaza's West to East movement had been the outlier, but it's quickly becoming the norm. All five musicals nominated for Best Musical at the 2018 Tony Awards were based off movies. Studios like Warner Brothers are following in Disney's footprints and creating theatrical divisions to milk their IPs dry. Does this mean we're out of new ideas? To quote Reverend Lovejoy, long answer yes with an if, short answer no with a but. 
The IP pipeline is now flowing in both directions with Mean Girls, Beetlejuice, First Rise Club, Legally Blonde, Mrs. Doubtfire, Back to the Future, The Notebook, and The Outsiders that are just some of the many movies that have gotten the musical treatment recently. Of the 26 shows on Broadway right now, 6.5 are based off movies. 0.5 because one is about Jaws, but not really. The pipeline isn't new. It's part of that special relationship between Hollywood and Broadway. It's just entering a new phase. Are these cash grabs or genuine efforts to preserve and create a new art firm? Is Broadway now about to experience its own Hello Dolly movie moment? Are we about to have a fallout? Little column A, little column two. But it's sort of always been about money, hasn't it? Back in the day, this played well for musicals. With their built-in intermissions, it gave folks a perfect opportunity to replenish their concessions and go out into the lobby and buy a commemorative gravy boat. And if we're being honest, and this stays just between us, Wicked should just have an intermission and not be two movies. That feels like a cash grab. But Ty, I hate musicals. I can't stand them. Well, to that I say, you've been watching musicals and you just didn't know it. A movie soundtrack is quickly becoming the de facto movie musical. Movies like 1984's Footloose and 2017's Baby Driver both have pop music that stand in for song breaks, but the vibe and the tone of the song still advance the plot and blur that line between diegetic and non-diegetic. Musicals have come a long way since the jazz singer and the Broadway melody of 1929. They've been knocked around a few times, but never knocked out like Rocky, which also became a musical in 2014. But never knocked out, because as quirky as they can be, the great ones, the truly great ones, use music to help express those feelings that we can't quite put into words, and that is a timeless quality. Just like we saw in the 1970s, musical films as a genre will continue to adapt and reshape themselves, trying to press that ever-elusive zeitgeist button. As that process happens, sure, we'll see a slew of like blatant cash grabs and head scratchers like, did that really need to be turned into a musical? But we'll also see some great innovations that move the genre into new areas never imagined. And I, for one, am excited for those. Maybe you're like me, and you hadn't seen a musical before you started researching this topic. Topic. Pausing for laughter to die down. And yet they tend to be everywhere. This is an attempt to convert you, but to inform you. So the next time your significant other drags you to see one, be it on stage or on screen, you'll have a bit more appreciation, bless you, for them as a genre as a whole. And you'll be able to switch your ear into that film language like reading Shakespeare a little bit faster. Maybe try quoting a factoid to really impress them. Because you know what? Love. That's why I do this. Making people fall in love. Oh my god. Is it me? Am I a matchmaker? I don't think I'm a matchmaker. Maybe I am. Am I Dolly Levi? I don't think I'm Dolly Levi. Act 2. Where the Grapes of Wrath are stored. The story of Oklahoma starts with a flag on a brisk day in March in St. Louis in Missouri. Whoa there, Ty. You promised us that this would not be a flag pod. Okay, you're right. I did promise, but this is germane, like it has evidentiary support, evidentiary support to the subject. This flagpole was special. It sat on the edge of a vast region in the middle of a continent. Whoever, whomever, had their flag flying on the pole claimed all the land beyond it. And that land was beautiful. It's vast. It's rich. It's got huge, huge tracts of land. So big, in fact. How big was it? I thank you. So big, in fact, it encompassed the entire watershed of the fourth largest river in the world, the M-I-S-S-I-S-S-S-I-P-P-I River. It's hard to imagine now, but there was a brief moment in time where those in the U.S. government were content with the size America was after the end of the Third English Civil War. In some other multiverse, America just remains along the East Coast from Georgia to Maine, plus the Northwest Ordinance Territories that become the states of Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin, and Kentucky, because we need the bourbon. But the fever dream 
dream of staying east of the Mississippi was short-lived. Thomas Jefferson, of Hamilton musical fame, purchased the Louisiana Purchase from France, and in doing so, doubled the size of the United States, and unknowingly set in motion a set of events that would eventually lead to the creation of the greatest American musical of all time being created. One minor detail needed to be ironed out before the United States could meet France in St. Louis. The U.S. needed to convince France to convince Spain to give up its claim to the western portion of the land. And after six months of talks in the spring of 1804, Spain conceded its claim to France, who in turn conceded its claim to the United States. On that day, in March of 1804, Spain raised its flag, a white field adorned with a red solitaire or X-shape, with notches jutting out at both sides over the government house in St. Louis one last time, marking the end of the Spanish Empire's claim to the Midwest. A few moments later... Directly after the Spanish flag was lowered, French soldiers raised the French flag, a simple blue, white, and red number that's all the rage in France. For one more night, the land of the Mississippi watershed basin was claimed by the French Empire. The next morning, the French guard who had protected their flag all night lowered it and made way for the American soldiers to hoist up the 15-starred and 15-striped version of the American flag. Getting a passport on March 9, 1804 must have been a nightmare. Now, TJ's purchase wasn't the start of Oklahoma. It was just the beginning of Oklahoma in the United States. Between the Paleocene era and the Louisiana Purchase, the six-sided shape we know of today as Oklahoma was inhabited by the Clovis cultures of Arrowhead Stadium fame, and they were followed by the Folsom cultures of Johnny Cash album fame, and both of those were followed by the Caden Mississippian cultures of Burial Platform Mound fame. What? Everything has to be a joke. DC needed proof of purchase, so it sent out Lewis and Clark on a new adventure to be supermen and explore the land and report back of what they saw along their incredible journey. Their goal was to see if a land inhabited by humans for tens of thousands of years was habitable for humans. More explorers were sent, forts were created, trade routes were established, and more and more reports were sent back to Washington. Occasionally, these reports were a bit phoned in, a major feat since the phone wouldn't be invented for another 73 years. For instance, the western border of Oklahoma with the Texas Panhandle, as you know, was established by the Adams-Onus Treaty of 1819 as the 100th parallel. Only they just sort of guessed where that 100th parallel was. On some early maps, it's as far west as Amarillo. On others, it's as far east as Oklahoma City. And another great fit of American genius, these explorers sort of just assumed that eventually they would run into a desert. They knew one was lurking out there somewhere. They just didn't know where along I-40 they would hit it. Well, they had narrowed it down between an area between the Pacific Coast and the Mississippi River. After passing through the Ozarks, Zebulon Pike, of Pike's Peak fame, took a look at the area in north-central Oklahoma and south-central Kansas and wrote back to D.C. saying, not a stick of timber, comparing the rolling plains to the sand dunes on the Sahara. He went on to say that it was not suitable for development or even farming, and without a second opinion, D.C. was like, yeah, that makes sense. Let's stamp this map as the Great American Desert. If Jefferson had just pushed a desert, he may have just made a $15 million mistake. For perspective, that's $340 million in 2023 dollars. And that only buys you 0.77% of Twitter. Nobody, except the Oakland Raiders, I guess, would want to move to the desert. As the decades passed, Americans slowly moved westward, continuing their encroachment of land already home to millions of people. President Andrew Jackson, of $20 bill fame, thought that by moving the tribes east of the Mississippi to west of the Mississippi, he would be rid of them for good. Thinking the land over there was just the Great American Desert, Congress and Jackson passed the Indian Removal Act of 1830 in hopes that if they didn't die along the way, they would die in the desert. 15,000 people died in what is now called the Trail of Tears as a result of bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson's genocidal schemes. Much to Jackson's chagrin, the tribes didn't go extinct, but Andy was successful in evolving the identity of the land that would one day be Oklahoma. It went from being a desert to at least not being suitable for Americans. From that point onward, the federal government left the tribes residing in the newly named Indian Territory alone. 
Except for the time after the Civil War, the federal government punished the five civilized tribes, a group that consisted of the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Muscogee Creek, and Seminole tribes, who, for reasons of their own, sided with the Confederacy by seizing back the western half of Indian Territory, basically I-35 to the Texas Panhandle. The feds didn't assign this newly vacated land to Texas or Kansas or anyone else. They didn't create a new territory out of it either, so they just called it unassigned lands. From that point onward, the federal government left the tribes now residing in the newly resized Indian Territory alone, except for the time they let lobbyists from the railroads come in and carve their way through the territory. Indian Territory was sovereign tribal land. The railroads couldn't just plow across it like they did everywhere else. The workaround was to go around Indian Territory, but going around it was annoying to the railroad tycoons who were playing a real-life game of Railroad Tycoon 3. After listening to the lobbyists, the federal government changed the rules and let the railroads in and let them crisscross the territory. From that point onward, with the Civil War over and the railroad tycoons appeased, the federal government... Okay, you get it. The government never let them alone. So now the federal government was wondering what to do with that vacated land west of I-35. Why not open it to white settlement? Brilliant idea, said the white farmers, answering their own question. In May of 1890, under the Oklahoma Organic Act, Oklahoma Territory became a thing, twinning its neighbor Indian Territory to the east. It seems logical that the Oklahoma-shaped hole near the center of the map would be filled by an Oklahoma-shaped state. However, it almost wasn't. It almost was two states. Oklahoma Territory and Indian Territory both auditioned to be separate states, going by the stage names of Oklahoma and Sequoia. They both submitted audition tapes, but sadly, they weren't invited further into the casting process. Republican President Teddy Roosevelt, of Night of the Museum fame, grimaced at the thought of having four new Democratic senators and had major issues with their miles-long proposed new state constitutions. So a compromise was struck. They would enter the Union as one state named... Um, named... Give me a sec. Uh, next slide, please. Named Oklahoma. On November 16, 1907, Oklahoma became the 46th state, and it seemed for some days thereafter that all Oklahoma's days would be warm and fair, except for the times that it wasn't. Like the time that Oklahoma Governor Alfalfa Bill Murray almost went to war with Texas over a new toll bridge. One of the many, many times he activated the Oklahoma National Guard. He ordered them to stand on the north end of the bridge, halting any new construction. The Texas governor countered by sending the Texas Rangers to the south side of the bridge. Alfalfa then had the brilliant idea to send elderly women to the middle of the bridge to quilt, hoping that would prevent a full-on battle. Quite the character that Alfalfa was. He helped write Oklahoma's really, really long constitution. Oh, and did I mention he has not one, but two counties in Oklahoma named after him? And he was basically a member of the Klan. Oop. From a certain vantage point, Oklahoma was taking steps to be the most progressive state to enter the Union. At one point, it led the nation with members of the <gasps> Socialist Party and had so many miles of interurban light rail tracks, it would make San Francisco blush. But another part of the reason that Roosevelt rejected the Constitution wasn't that it was just too long. It included some blatant Jim Crow amendments. They removed those and learned to be more subtle. So when the first legislature met in the new state capital of Guthrie, the very first law the new Oklahoma legislature passed as a new state was to segregate its public transit. No matter how progressive Oklahoma looked on paper, Jim Crow was always lurking around each corner of the state house and in city halls. And just when Oki started to see some prosperity in their farming and ranching and that newly discovered oily stuff called oil, things went south in a hurry. The overuse of land brought on an eight-year drought and sunk Oklahoma into a major depressive episode. And notice I said Okies, not Oklahomans. Okies are different. Something that should be innocuous as saying Kansan or Texan or Michigander. Okay, maybe not that one. That one, that one is still weird. But Okie is different. It's a purposeful distinction that is different than an Oklahoman. They are not us. We are not them. 
They are, dare I say, the outsiders, but a little bit more on that later. As the Dust Bowl raged on, the tenant farmers and sharecroppers moved west into the greener pastures of California. Hordes of Okies invaded California's borders looking for work and better futures. Neighborhoods called Little Oklahomas popped up all over the state. As author Russell Cobb writes, Californians at the time said of the Okies, they're stealing our jobs. They should go back to where they came from. They're dirty. They're bringing disease. This was said 90 years ago. Oklahoma was, was, is keenly aware how they are perceived by those outside of the state. Anytime there's a national news story, you bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow on KFOR, Linda Cavanaugh is going to mention how that person is connected to Oklahoma. So in 1939, John Steinbeck had the audacity to write a fictional story about a fictional family that left the non-fictional Oklahoma for the non-fictional California. Instead of the book being perceived as a critique of capitalism and the dehumanization of machinery and land use and systemic inequality, good and proper Oklahomans took it as a personal affront. There were calls to ban the book outright throughout the state, have it not be taught in schools, have it purged from libraries and even burned at some point. Pointing out that Okies are different than the rest of white Americans was an embarrassment. Cobb goes on to say that being an Okie was to have failed at being white. Steinbeck made the whole country see how different they were from everyone else. Oklahoma was suffering from an epic case of middle child syndrome, searching for an identity and being forgotten along the way. Try as it might, Oklahoma could not escape the myths and legends that it inherited about itself, a state in the middle of a mythic great American desert, passed over by corporations because Okies were too poor to buy anything, a dumping ground for the tribes the federal government didn't want to deal with anymore, a task no PR team in the world could get ahead of. Was this the fate of the new state of Oklahoma? Away We Go might have been a flop, a forgotten show in the sea of 200 shows that opened and closed in the 1943 Broadway season. Away We Go, complete with its own exclamation point, held out-of-town previews in Connecticut before it transferred to Broadway. Reviews of the show were kind of lackluster. It really wasn't a play because it had songs, and there was also this weird 15-minute ballet sequence. But it wasn't quite a ballet either. The first act didn't start with a high-energy chorus number. It starts with a lone singer offstage, and the second act was nearly as long as the first, and it really didn't have that 11 o'clock number. So the production team, an unproven choreographer, and a lyricist who had a string of flops already needed some epic changes in order to move the show to the St. James Theater in New York. And they made two, a brand new song to wake everyone up in the second act and change the title of the show to the title of the new song, but still kept the punctuation mark. Oklahoma opened on Broadway on March 31st, 1943, and now you know the rest of the story. Good day. That's not my show. The PR team for Oklahoma was saved. Oklahoma's movers and shakers latched onto the coattails of the success. The state song was changed, and both major universities changed their fight songs to the titular track. The University of Oklahoma president saw this new wave and asked for state funds to be funneled into the alien football program, which he saw as another way to show off Oklahoma exceptionalism to the nation. OU President George Lynn Cross once quipped to one day have a university the football team could be proud of. The stadium at OU was expanded, and coincidentally, the OU football team won the national championship the same year the movie adaptation of Oklahoma came out in theaters. The success of the musical Oklahoma was entirely independent of any action of any actor acting within the actual state of Oklahoma. But it didn't matter. Overnight, the image of the Okie as a dirty, poverty-stricken sharecropper was washed away to reveal a handsome, singing blonde cowboy. The world was now quite literally singing the praises of Oklahoma! Exclamation point, and Oklahoma was basking in some positive limelight for the first time in its statehood. If Steinbeck's Jode family could be taken literally, it seems to reason that the cast of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma should be too. Let's just completely gloss over the fact that the male lead murders someone right on stage before his wedding and uses his influence and popularity to bend the criminal justice system to his bidding, and then threatens to use some yellow journalism to keep the laws from being enforced. Shh, 
Plenty of folks absorb media at face value. Nothing wrong with a little break from literary criticism every now and then. I could stand to do that as well. With the biggest of theater kid energy, Oklahoma made Oklahoma its whole personality, and in doing so, deleted all of the nuance and complexity of these characters. It boiled things down into the two simplest bits possible. Curly good, Judd bad, done and dusted. There couldn't possibly be a deeper meaning, right? RNH couldn't have possibly written a deeper critique of society, right? Could it maybe symbolize the means we take to achieve peace might not be as wholesome and pure as we think? And maybe the promise and hopefulness of Oklahoma's future came at the cost of a life and the compromise of our value system? Eh. We need to remember that when Oklahoma came out in 1943, the United States was still in the midst of fighting World War II. For those on the home front, a bit of escapism was very much welcome, and a singing cowboy was just the ticket. But R&H are clever. They disguised their themes and symbolism. Just like Oklahoma preparing to be a state in 1907 and quickly ushered into this new era, what world would they be ushered into once the war was over? Maybe it was a warning that victory wasn't a guarantee. After all, we already knew some of the future Oklahoma had. The discovery of oil literally changed the landscape and continues to do so. It also brought a lot of greed and shady land deals, kidnappings and murders. Thirteen years after statehood, the black neighborhood of Greenwood and Tulsa was completely decimated by white Tulsans and the worst massacre in our nation's history. Later still, the very land would rise up against them and cover their towns and houses in thick layers of dirt and refuse to produce crops that they sing so joyously about in the musical. There must have been some tongue-in-cheekiness going on with couldn't have picked a better time to start in life, knowing all of that was around the corner. Oklahoma really is a tragedy. I'll let you, the listener, figure out if I said that with an exclamation point or not. The musical would close on Broadway after securing a record-long run of nearly five years. When the movie came out, it again revived its popularity, and Oklahoma was back in the spotlight. And it's still today one of the most revived shows on Broadway in the West End. And for over 30 years, an amphitheater in Sand Springs, Oklahoma would perform it. More recently, the 2019 revival, the so-called Sexy Oklahoma, strips the show down to its bare essentials, trying to deconstruct it, and ends up being nothing more than a glorified table read. I'm not a fan of that one. But if it's just a bit of escapism, its impact would have been relegated to one of those state quirks, like not pumping gas in Oregon, or using a bubbler in Wisconsin, or illiteracy in Arkansas. But its themes of love and loss are timeless. And that's what makes Oklahoma so great. But brushing aside our unsavory parts for the shiny, new, popular thing isn't just an Oklahoma problem. I just happen to be focusing on Oklahoma's story. Painting a gold veneer over our trouble spots is what we do best. We literally have a whole age of U.S. history named after doing just that. Currently, across the country, history books are now in the limelight for which version of history gets taught. We can't let the version that sweeps everything bad under the rug, hoping we forget it, win. We've got to do better. I may just be a cockeyed optimist thinking that people can uphold complexities of life and live in that tension and not break, but actually become stronger by acting upon more information, not less, to use that information on the past to inform our decisions for the future. I want to live in that society. I want to live in a society that acknowledges and makes amends, not one that just acts like everything's a-okay when it actually isn't. But history may be repeating itself. Every election cycle, immigration seems to be a hot-button issue only to disappear again the day after the election. And just listen to how it's talked about. In the lead-up to the election, the humanness gets removed, leaving us talking about people in the abstract. Now they are aliens, immigrants, or, quote, illegals. The statements Californians once made about Okies in the 1930s are eerily similar to how Americans now talk about people arriving from Central and South America. I always wondered if the state was in on the joke on its license plate and tourist motto. Oklahoma is okay. The state marketing team loudly proclaiming to anyone and everyone that Oklahoma is just okay. Average. All right. And just so this won't age in three years, mid. Or maybe they were smarter than that. 
maybe it's this other read, the loaded Midwestern reading, the one we use not to burden people with our personal troubles or tragedies, as if it's answering the question, how are you, Oklahoma? I'm okay. And we move on, not pressing or bringing up the issue again. Maybe the Convention and Visitors Bureau should adopt a new slogan, more apt for the 21st century. Oklahoma. It's okay to not be okay. Did this have anything to do with the actual creation of the musical, or the movie adaptation, or behind the scenes of the movie, or my dead nuclear physicist's husband, or Colonel Mustard's work on the top-secret fusion bomb? No. Oklahoma was just a red herring. Iowa has the Music Man, Kansas has the Wizard of Oz, and California has Phantom Planet. But there's no other media-to-real-world location connection as intertwined as Oklahoma and Oklahoma are. For better or worse, this one musical movie changed the perception of a state nearly overnight in pop culture. The musical radically changed Oklahoma's perception of self, and maybe they took away a different lesson than the authors intended. Surely there are other movies set in Oklahoma or have Oklahomans central to the plot, right? Let's see, there's uh, The Outsiders, August Osage County, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Grapes of Wrath, oh, well... No, forget that one. But but none of them really present Oklahoma in a marketable way, or dare I say, whitewashed way. Oklahoma exclamation point is a love story at its core. Actually, it's a series of love triangles that remind us you can get away with murder as long as you're attractive. Or, 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 it's a more subtle read. A reading that peers through space and time, telling us to hold on to the hope that you have now, because you're going to need that to help sustain you in an uncertain future, and that our actions today play a role in how that future develops. Nah, it's probably just the hot cowboy. Epilogue. You're doing fine. Well, sir, here we are again. Musicals on Broadway and musicals on film share a lot of the same qualities, but because they're different mediums, they need to allow the story to resonate at a frequency that lets the style and patterns of their medium shine the brightest. And we have to be vigilant against cynicism when the cyclone created by the recursive adaptation feedback loop comes into town. We can't let that dust cloud cloud our vision and hide where the truly great gems are. So what's your favorite movie adaptation of a musical? Or maybe your least favorite? Or a movie that you'd like to see get the Broadway treatment? Let me know in the comments below. Or above. Or maybe to the side. I don't know where the comments are. I also never fully understood why studios go through this whole song and dance routine to give us a song and dance routine of a movie musical when they could just as easily crank out a play adaptation by the dozen. Like if Disney can adapt Indiana Jones into a stage show at a theme park, surely Disney Theatrical could bring Indy to the New Amsterdam Theater in New York. Did did I just put that idea out there in the universe? Well, maybe no one likes plays because they don't make as much money. Right now, musicals are where the money is, so plays will remain playing second fiddle. Speaking of plays, you can't take it with you one Best Picture, but it didn't win the Tony for Best Play because it predated the Tonys by nearly 12 years. That movie is chaos on so many levels, but I find it kind of charming, and it's kind of one of my favorite stage plays. Stage plays. Stage staged plays. In post-Tony Awards era America, only two plays have won Best Picture. 1966's A Man for All Seasons and 1984's Amadeus Amadeus. Those were 18 years apart, so we should be getting our next double-double winner in... Carry the one. Oh my god. 2002. Chicago won in 2002. So does that mean if Nomadland gets turned into a play, it's guaranteed to win the Tony? We might have to wait and see. And also stay on the lookout to see if another double-double winner arrives in 2038. Finally, Oklahoma is, well, Oklahoma. To paraphrase Russell Cobb, paraphrasing Bob Dylan, paraphrasing Walt Whitman, Oklahoma contradicts itself. Very well, Oklahoma contradicts itself. Oklahoma contains multitudes. Oklahoma has had a very unique past, but just because it doesn't fit neatly into a box doesn't mean we should shy away from it. 
maybe we just get rid of the box. People of color, particularly Native Americans, are impacted very differently by Oklahoma's story than I am. The work to reframe history outside of this monolithic narrative still continues. It's far more complex and nuanced than I have talent to relay. And also, my experience living in the state is not the authoritative text. It's just one of millions. Much to the OU Athletic Department's chagrin, there isn't just one Oklahoma but many. And every state in these here United States does this. Florida is right now actively doubling down and selling this fairy tale version of itself to schools, as if to say we the public are not capable of holding those multitudes. Oklahoma's not unique in that aspect, but since there isn't a musical called Nevada Ellipse, well, Oklahoma got caught in the spotlight. I absolutely do think that Oklahoma is the bright and colorful world of the musical, and you have not lived until you've eaten an onion burger from Sid's in El Reno, or had a Theta burger from the Mont Norman, or even tried a fried pie from Arbuckles in OKC. It's the Rolling Plains, the Black Mesa, the Wichita and Ozark Mountains. It, it gave us Woody Guthrie, Christian Chenoweth, Chris Gaines, Kelly and Mickey Mantle, Prima Ballerina Maria Tallchief, Jim Thorpe, Shannon Miller, and Reba. Just to name a few. I don't know how this happened, but I left out Will Frickin' Rogers. He got a musical about his life that won Best Musical in 1991. Ugh, the show is about musicals. Oh, oh, and I even forgot Pops and Arcadia. Okay, point taken. I give all these examples because at the end of the day, I love this little quirky place. I'm glad that I used to call it Homa. Meh, see what I did there? As for Oklahoma's future, I'm still optimistic about that. Like, recently, Oklahoma City is fully revamping its public transit system, and that's something to be celebrated. That's enough to make Natasha Bedingfield's heart swell with joy because Oklahoma's future is still unwritten. So what story will get told? The story will be one of hope and excitement, just like the musical invokes. But yes, there will also be pain and sorrow and loneliness, which, if one remembers Oklahoma exclamation point, those feelings are there too. And that's okay. Join me next time as I dive into the design and creation of the Oklahoma State flag and its exciting history. For FlagPod, I'm... Okay. I'm regretting making that promise right now. For more information about the history of Oklahoma, its unique past, and its lovable quirks, check out the book Boomtown by Sam Anderson and The Great Oklahoma Swindle by Russell Cobb, wherever you get your books. In the pit with the orchestra is our composer and conductor, Joshua D. Weinstock. This episode's stage manager, prop master, and dramaturgist is me. And a huge shout-out to our Patreon Cement Level supporter, at Moonraker0022. Without you, none of this would be possible. Want to discuss all the movie musical adaptations I didn't even mention, or Oklahoma's position in the pop culture narrative, or any past episodes? I'd love to hear your thoughts and talk shop with you more. Send me a message on Instagram or send me an email at canweposit or at canweposit at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. For Can We Posit, I'm Ty McCarthy. We'll see you next time. Oh, I guess this is where I bow. Pretend I'm bowing. That's just the curtain call. Good night.